be with you all. As we continue in our worship and come to the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures. And I want to just this week take a brief break from the Gospel of John. And I'll mention in a moment the reason for that. And turn your attention as we come to the Word of God to two passages. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. First Peter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Peter charges us similarly to the charge the Apostle Paul has given us. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Amen. Let us pray and ask God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us unite our hearts and pray together. Our Father, we have just sung one of the most glorious hymns of the love of Christ to His people. The condescension of our Savior. The Prince of Peace. The Lord of Glory. Who came with nothing but love in His heart. And yet was met by a sinful world. A world that one moment is singing hosannas to their King and the next moment crying, crucify Him. And yet, our dear Lord went willingly to the cross for the sake of His people. People who at that time still were in rebellion against Him that He might win them to God. Father, as we think of the love of Christ, we pray that it would cause us to fear sinning against such love. As we think upon the fact that it was not just sin in general, but my sin and our sin that put our Lord upon the cross, we pray that we would see sin for what it is, our greatest enemy and the greatest poison of our souls. The greatest offense to our majestic and glorious God. Father, we pray this morning as we consider our adversary, the devil, and how he loves and longs to cause God's people to be harassed and assailed and tempted, that, Lord, we would not be ignorant of his devices, that we would stick close, walking with God, in genuine communion with God, being aware of this lion who prowls around seeking those whom He may devour, that we might fight against Him. 
that we might walk in genuine fear of the Lord, that we might be fueled by the love, the infinite love that You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have shown to us, Your people. Father, we ask that You would grant us our requests and our petitions. Teach us. Instruct us by Your Spirit, we pray, not only in our minds, but instruct our wills. Teach our consciences to see sin for what it is. We pray that You would motivate us and create within us new spiritual desires to live a holy life in the fear of God, living before Your face, that we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of Your Master. Father, bless Your people. Draw near to us, we pray. Work in the hearts of unbelievers. Those who are entangled in sin. Those who have grown comfortable with sin. We ask, Father, make them alive. Cause them to tremble at the danger. And cause them to flee to Christ for safety and refuge. We ask that You would draw near to us. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The reason we're taking a break from John this morning is because I was down in Southern California most of the week at the Puritan Conference with Joel Beakey, and, or put on by Joel Beakey and, and several other good brothers, and spent the majority of the week sitting under the richness of not only Puritan theology, but also the Puritan approach to the Christian life. And there was one session in particular by Jeff Thomas in which the whole session he opened up a particular Puritan book. It's a classic, and it's one that I forgot I loved so much. Some of you are familiar with it because I've spoken about it. It's Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And that's where I'm stealing my title from, obviously. If you don't have that book, I highly encourage you to get it, to read it. It's a very accessible uh, entry point to the Puritans. Very easy to read. And it is a practical Puritan book on the diverse and manifold ways the devil assaults and assails and tempts and condemns the people of God, all the while bringing along with Satan's devices Scripture's precious biblical remedies to fight against the devices of Satan. As Peter makes plain in the text that we read in 1 Peter 5, the devil is an all-too-real enemy for the people of God. And we need to be aware of that. We need to wake up every morning and realize we have a real formidable foe who has his face set on destroying the faith of God's people. I know that there are many people today in the world who attribute too much to Satan, and that comes with a whole set of its own problems. But there are others who attribute too little to Satan and who walk through this life drowsy and half asleep and unaware of the battle that rages against their soul. And they live as though when the Lord Jesus ascended and took leave of this world, that Satan must have at the same time taken leave of this world. But to think that way and to live that way is to tempt the devil with easy prey. It is to dismantle our own defenses and go to sleep while the enemy hunts for us. 
No. The devil, having been defeated and defanged by the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is now like a wounded animal who is more aggressive than ever towards the church. And he has a couple of tactics. Number one, the first tactic is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from a knowledge of the truth. He keeps sinners in darkness, in ignorance. He keeps them hiding in the ugliness of their sins, comforting them with the delusion of false assurance. He doles their hearts to truth. He perverts the Scriptures. He entraps them in false religion. He causes them to justify and acquit their own sinful lifestyle because after all, there are other people who do the same thing. That's the first tactic. Doing all he can to keep sinners from coming to a knowledge of the truth. But then secondly, when he cannot successfully keep Christ's sovereign grace from getting a hold of his people, and despite all of his best efforts, Christians are being saved and coming to faith in Christ, he then makes it his aim to assail and harass and tempt the Christian in order to utterly unsettle him and to crush him and to destroy all of the Christian's comfortable dependence upon God, rendering them almost useless and defeated. Christian, our enemy, the enemy of our soul, has declared upon the church no quarter And he is skilled in his strategy. More skilled than you can even imagine. Edward said of the devil that he was trained in the best of schools, the very school of divinity. And he has been studying mankind for a very long time. William Jenkins, a a Puritan, said, Satan has an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, and a money bag for Judas. He tempts the young man with sexual lust. He tempts the middle-aged man with an itch for honor and importance. He tempts the older man with covetousness. He tempts one Christian with a sensitive conscience to despair. Another to doubt. He makes another one proud. Another one a legalist. Another one a hypocrite. Another one he exposes them to the love of the world. Many, many are the arrows in his quiver which he fires at the Achilles heel of God's people. He knows the breaches in the walls of our hearts. He knows where we have most easily fallen in the past. He knows the path of least resistance where he has in the past easily made entrance into our hearts. And he exposes those things and exploits them. And therefore, as Thomas Brooks said, there are four things that we must primarily give ourselves to the study of. Christ, the Scriptures, our own hearts, and Satan's devices. A Christian who gives himself or herself to the study of those four things over the course of their life will by the grace of God do well. Because Christ has promised to us That while our foe is strong and relentless and brutal and cunning, yet Christ promises His people with precious promises in the Bible 
Like, He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. We sing a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would what? Be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. God has called us to gird up ourselves for battle, but not without supplying His people with the weapons that they need to fight. He has given us the precious Word of God to guide us. Contained in which are instruction, and not only instruction, but examples by which God warns us of the dangers of the devil and his temptations, but also teaches us and leads us in the way that we should go. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to, kind of in the spirit of Thomas Brooks, I want to open up five of Satan's devices along with their precious remedies. Okay? And not all, not all of these are verbatim taken from Brooks. Some of them are my own. But in the spirit of the Puritans, this is a sermon on the Christian life, how to do battle spiritually with the forces of darkness. So I have five things this morning, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, number one device that Satan uses against God's people is this. Satan deceives us by hiding the odiousness of sin. He deceives us by hiding the odiousness of sin. The Puritans devoted themselves to seeing and feeling the sinfulness of sin. They wanted to see sin as as abhorrent as a fallen sinner possibly could see it. And they realized that even the most godly of Christians who has come to see the depth of the ugliness of sin has not even come close to the way God sees sin, but they wanted to see it as much as they possibly could for the evil that it is. And they taught their people and they rehearsed to themselves things like this. That if you could roll into one all of the afflictions that have ever been on earth and all of the disease and all of the sickness and all of the death and all of the bereavement, if you could roll all of that pain into one and it could somehow be laid upon you and you could feel that, they said that there is more evil in the smallest of sins than in all those afflictions combined. And yet, Satan makes it his aim to numb men and women and to blind them to how repugnant sin is. Right? Third chapter of Genesis. He comes to Eve with smooth speech and he says to her, Eve, it's just a tree. It's just a fruit. It's just a bite. You won't die. Who told you you would die? He says, look at how profitable this tree would be to you. He says, not only will you not die, this, you will gain from this tree. If you eat this, your eyes will be open and you will become like God, Eve. And she took the bait, not realizing that he was hiding the hook. That is what Satan is a master at doing. He presents to us the bait of sin. He shines up for us the fleeting pleasures of sin, like Hebrews talks about. And he, he presses upon our, our affections and our desires how good this would feel. 
how satisfying this would be, how, how satisfying it would taste and how rewarding it would be, but He's hiding from us the hook of wrath and misery that sin brings. Job 20, verses 12 and 14. He says, Though evil be sweet in the mouth, and though he hides it under his tongue, verse 14, yet his food is turned in his stomach, and it is the venom of cobras within him. Satan, let me give you three things that Satan hides from us when he lessens the odiousness of sin. First of all, Satan hides from us First, the beauty of God in His holiness. He hides from our view in our mind how treasonous and unfitting it is for me, this creature of the dust, to even in the slightest way raise my hand against the Lord of glory and the Holy One of Israel. He hides from me How to walk contrary to this God who is infinite in His beauty, infinite in His majesty, and infinite in His goodness is an infinitely odious transgression. But secondly, He hides from us the consequences of sin. We are so nearsighted. Peter talks about nearsightedness. We are so nearsighted that we forget that that quote-unquote little sin that you committed this morning and I committed this morning, whether it was a sharp word or the white lie or the overindulgence or children, children, listen to me, those little sins that you don't think about, like being selfish and stealing the toy from your brother or your sister or disobeying mom and dad, we forget that that little sin by itself is enough to send me to hell because it is a sin against God Almighty. Thirdly, Satan hides from us God's hatred of sin as it is demonstrated in the cross of Christ. God demonstrated the odiousness of sin not primarily and mostly in the giving of the law, but at Calvary. The Puritans would emphasize this again and again of how sin is a, is a double sin of the Christian. Not only is it a sin against creation, it is a sin against divine love and redemption. When you look at Calvary, you see that for God to discharge the debt of sin's sinfulness, it took what? The death of the Son of God. And me, when I'm living my life moment by moment, Instead of me being mindful of that and stopping myself before I sin so flippantly and reminding myself, no. No, it was sin, my sin, that nailed my Savior to the cross and reminding myself, how can I make friends with the enemy of my Savior? Instead, Satan comes to us and he says, don't think about that. Don't think about God. Don't think about consequences. Don't think about the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Just do what you want and what you feel. What's the remedy, Christian, for this? What's the remedy for this device of Satan? Here's one. Christian, cultivate the awe of God 
and you will cultivate the fear of sinning. Cultivate the, your awe of who God is and you will at the same time cultivate the fear of sinning. Okay? We should look upon sin as literally, without hyperbole, and we could use much stronger and better language than I have here, we should look upon sin as the most dangerous and deadly poison. Now here's the thing. Many of you, just like me, are sitting there and you, you're nodding in agreement with that and you're thinking, I agree with that intellectually. Right? I ought to, every moment of every day, see sin as the God-defying, judgment-provoking thing that it is and I should never, ever go near it. And yet you're sitting there and you're thinking, and yet oftentimes I just don't see it that way. And... I know oftentimes what is right, but it is so easy for me to just oftentimes just go ahead and still do the wrong. Listen, that is because seeing sin for what it is in all of its hideousness is directly correlated to seeing God for who He is. Just as having a small view of sin will cause you to have a small view of what it means for God to be Savior, Having, having a small view of God will cause you to have very slight views of the very dead seriousness of sin. So, let me give you an example from this week, okay? And how the Lord pressed this truth into my heart in a very practical, experiential way. In one of the sessions this week, in my opinion, the cost of the, of, the, of the conference was worth this one session. In particular, the last 10 or 15 minutes of this session. In this session, one of the speakers turned from instruction and he began to preach to the congregation. And he began to give what is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful pleas with sinners to come to Christ and one of the most powerful explanations of the Gospel that I've ever heard. And as he did that, he began to weave together the beauty of God's greatness. The greatness of God Himself as demonstrated in the Gospel. And he wove together the beautiful holiness of God along with the frightening justice of God along with the, the sweetness of the love of God. And as he did, he opened up the grace of the Father giving the Son and the freeness of the Son's love given to his, for His people and the, the love of the Spirit. And everyone in that room listening was just arrested as we were, as it were, being pulled up by this preacher as it were, into the very presence of God Himself beholding the majesty of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just what they have done, but who they are as is demonstrated in what they have done. And for those ten minutes or so, I was overcome with the majesty of God. The beauty of God. And here's the point. You know what happened simultaneously as he was preaching in my own heart? as I beheld God in His glory through the preaching of His Word, suddenly silent prayers began to burst forth from my heart 
Earnest prayers as simple as this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, cause me never to sin against so great a God. My sin, as I heard the glories of God, the majesty of God, my sin, some of which honestly I don't even often think much about, suddenly became to me absolutely heinous as I saw them naked and exposed for what they are as they were juxtaposed to the glory of God. And I was disgusted with the ease at which I am able to entertain things and to think things and to do things that are opposed to this great God. And I found myself just pleading with God, Lord, cause me to always have such a view. It's like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration when he didn't want it to to end. And let's build tents here and stay here. That's how I felt, Lord, Cause me always to be taken up with this sense of Your majesty and Your glory that I might always walk carefully and not sin against You. And honestly, Christian, that was the highlight of the conference for me. I walked out of that room more watchful, more afraid of sinning, more resolved to resist the devices of Satan because I had seen and delighted in the greatness of God. And seeing Him made sin unthinkable. That's very important for us to learn. It wasn't merely an exposition of the commandments that did that. Don't get me wrong, we need an exposition of the law to instruct us of what is right and guide us in what is right and wrong. But what about when we already know the law like Eve did, but my flesh just doesn't feel it's a big deal to transgress the law? That's when we need not just bare rules, but we need an experiential knowledge and love and fear of the Holy One of Israel from whom those commandments flow. So that's the, that's the remedy against this first device of Satan. Is cultivate the awe of God, the fear of God. Cultivate seeing God as infinite in majesty and beauty and holiness. And if you do that and are sincerely communing with Father, Son, and Spirit, sin will simultaneously become to you more and more distasteful and more odious and more terrible. That brings us to number two. Second device. Satan leads us from lesser sins to greater sins. Satan leads us or tricks us, we might say, deceives us from going from lesser sins to greater sins. So Ephesians 4.26, for an example, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians, be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor what? Give place to the devil. What happens in For instance, we'll take that text as an example. What happens, Christian, when you sinfully let the sun go down on your anger? Paul says you give place to the devil. Now, to give place to the devil means to allow him to have free room and board in your heart. Even if it's something as seemingly minor as, yeah, I'm angry with my wife and I'm not going to forgive her yet. Not tonight. 
That just feels too soon for after what she's done. Small sins tempt the devil to tempt you to greater sins. And before you know it, you do that once or twice. Before you know it, you're letting the sun go down on your anger not just twice, but three times, four times, five times a week. And pretty soon, you're not just content to kind of sulk and give her the silent treatment, but now you're yelling. You're fighting. And when that's not enough, now you're calling each other names, insulting one another, and on and on, sin grows. And before you know it, that small sin, quote-unquote, has turned into grievous sin, and that one little place that you gave to the devil, he has exploited, and he now takes up residence on the whole block. One Puritan gave the, the analogy, he likened small sins to paint primer. And, and he said that just as you prime a wall with primer before you paint so that the paint will adhere better, he said, so smaller sins lay the foundation for the greater sins to stick. No doubt you've experienced that, even at least to some degree in your own heart. The eye that is allowed to wander into lust and that is not that sin is not killed will eventually find its way to worse things like pornography or worse the heart that harbors anger and bitterness will soon be consumed with malice david you take david as an example his sin grew by degrees it started with spiritual lukewarmness and then the abandonment of his duties he's not out at war like he ought to have been and then it moves to the lust of the eyes and the curiosity, and then it moves to physically acting upon that lust until we get to the final stage and his sin grows full flower and he commits the sin of murder. Christian, don't think that small sin will stay small and won't take you to bad places. I'll give you an example again. This week, I was, talk- excuse me, I was talking to a group of pastors And one of them told the story of another pastor that they knew who was in ministry who fell into an adulterous relationship, disqualified himself from ministry. And this pastor that I'm talking to asked this man who has fallen, and he asked him, how did this happen? How did we get here? And this is what the man proceeded to tell this pastor. He said, 15 years ago, a family joined my church. And I thought the wife was pretty. And I didn't kill my attraction. I didn't kill my desire. But I knew nothing could ever come of it because she's married and I'm married. Years later, almost 15 years later, her husband dies. And he continues to entertain his ungodly and unlawful desires for this woman and sin begins to grow and temptations increase, and now he's out of the ministry. Christ's name has been sullied and dishonored, and that church has been devastated. Christian, when, is, when was the time for that man to kill sin? Fifteen years ago. 
And I have heard stories time and time again about Christians who grow lax in their walk with God and they're fighting sin and they're fighting to see the beauty of God and the beauty of His holiness and the devil exploits it and wreaks havoc in their life and in the church. What's the remedy? Here's the remedy. Christian, my brother and my sister, I don't know your heart like you know your heart. I, I am limited in my knowledge. I do... I try to do as best as I can as a pastor. I know I don't do the best as good as I could do. I don't know the thoughts that run through your head. And I don't know the things that you allow to just sit there that you dwell on and that potentially right now in this very season, you have some serious temptation that you are entertaining. Christian, wage war against the smallest sins. If you let the head of the serpent into your door, it is not going to be hard for the rest of his skinny body to get into your house. Do not grow comfortable with sin. If you do that, you are tempting the lion to devour you. Don't reason to yourself this way. I have the self-control that others have lacked. They let their little sins get out of hand, but I'm able to keep it contained. Christian, hear me. You are not able to keep it contained. Okay? Let me save you the heartache and the sorrow and the pain and the destruction. You have the same weakness every other person had who reasoned the same exact way you are and thought they could keep a lid on their sin. The moment sin gets into your heart, believer, mortify it. Kill it. And even after it has stopped moving, keep inflicting blows upon it to make sure that it is dead. This is why being in a healthy church is so vital for the Christian not to be taken by the devil and stray off the the narrow path. And when I say membership is vital, I don't just mean your name is on a roll. I mean being a meaningful member of a church, a part of a family that is actually like a family, and you actually have brothers and sisters who can carry you along as the devil is assailing and harassing you. Christian, talk about your struggles with sin with others. Don't leave your struggles in the darkness and the privacy of your own heart. The devil will take you out if you try to deal with him one-on-one. But with friends, real spiritual friends like Pilgrim had again and again in Pilgrim's Pro- or Christian had in Pilgrim's Progress, with friends, Christians, we are far more likely to stay on the narrow path. And also, don't reach out to those friends three months after you've already been feeding this sin. And it's really taken you already to a bad place. Talk to them at the very first sight of enemy invasion. When you are tempted in a particular area, you should view that as, if you think about your heart as a city with walls, you should view that as a wall the enemy has breached that needs to be refortified. It's not just something we need to kind of just let go. unaddressed, 
You need to give that area special attention, watching and praying. And I mean that, Christian, watching and praying. Meditate on the sinfulness of sin and how bad this already is. And meditate on how much worse it could go if you don't kill it. Think about how how much better off Peter might have been in his moment of great temptation if he had heeded the Lord's words in his smaller temptation in the garden to watch and pray. That's the second device. That brings us to number three. Satan deceives by showing us the best men's sins, but hiding their repentance. Satan deceives us by showing us the best men's sins and hiding from us their repentance. Now it's here that I want to speak primarily to the backslider and the Christian hypocrite. The backslider and the Christian hypocrite. As I look out upon my people, I know most of you quite well. I don't know who you are, but God knows. Okay? And it's possible, I guess, that as I speak to the backslider and the Christian hypocrite right now, it's possible that I'm not speaking to a single soul in this room, but experience tells me that I would be naive to think that. This device of Satan is so dangerous because it will bring many to Judgment Day who had confidence that upon arriving they would be greeted by Christ with the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Master, only to hear these words, depart from Me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. If you're that person, take heed to the Word of God. God is addressing you. He's being merciful to your soul. You're deceiving yourself and God is prodding you to wake up from the deception. Don't don't cast this off and reason with yourself that He's not talking about me. He's not talking about my case. He's talking about others. I am talking about you. You who are coddling sin without repentance. You who your conscience has grown dull towards sin. You who have made peace with sin. And you have reasoned this way, perhaps. David committed adultery and murder. Hezekiah was arrogant. Job was patient or impatient. Peter was blasphemous. And all of those saints are in heaven. They've done the same things, maybe even worse things than I'm doing, and yet they made it. That's true. But what the devil has hidden from you is that the Scriptures not only testify to their great fall, but the Scriptures also testify to their great sorrow and repentance and turning from sin. And you have probably, either consciously or uh, subconsciously, thought to yourself, I don't want to think about Psalm 51. 
David, David's prayer of repentance. I don't want to think about the end of Job. I don't want to think about Peter's bitter tears and his restora- his, the Lord's gracious restoration and his repentance. I just like the fact that they sinned grievously and they made it to heaven. Or perhaps the same principle, you look at, at others in the church. Probably even pastors, big famous pastors who have fallen. And you reason to yourself, look at how fruitful their ministries were. Look at all the evangelism they were involved in. Look at how much good they did. Certainly they must be in the kingdom of heaven, and yet they did the same thing that I am doing. That's the voice of the serpent. Don't listen to the voice of the serpent. Listen to the voice of God. What is the remedy? First of all, you need to be honest with God. I can't make you honest with God. All I can do as a preacher of the Gospel is to plead with you. This is what God is saying to you. And if you are where I am describing, you are in danger. You need to right now with Judgment Day honesty, if Christ were to return at this moment, is there an area or areas in your heart of sin that you are coddling that make you wonder if Christ returned right now, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. And with Judgment Day honesty, do you fear meeting Christ? Listen to me. It is the most foolish gamble to wait till the last day to find out whether you are a genuine Christian who is backslidden or an unbeliever and hypocrite who is on your way to hell. That is the height of foolishness. Go by what is written. We do not only have David's and Job's and Peter's fall and their sin, we have their repentance recorded for us as well. We do not judge our own state by the sins that others have committed. We judge our state by whether or not we are bearing the marks of one who knows God. The whole world could profess Christ and then live in adultery and drunkenness. The whole world could do that. And it would not nullify for a second what God says a Christian is. So it doesn't matter who you can point to. They're not the standard. The Word is the standard. And so the question for you is not can you sin like the saints? That's not hard. The question is, do you repent with the saints? Because repentance from sin is what marks a true believer. And even as I say that, you might be reasoning with yourself, well, some Christians repent 30 seconds after they sin. Others repent 30 minutes after they sin. Others repent you know, three days after they sin. Why not, in my case, couldn't it be 30 weeks? Or 30 months. Listen to me. Is that possible for a genuine Christian to be genuinely in a state of being backslidden for that long? It's possible. But I would not want to dare press that. 
If you are asking the question, how long can I go on in sin without repenting and still being a Christian? You are asking the wrong question. And it's a dangerous question that reveals something about where your heart's at. My friend, and I'm speaking to the Christian, I don't, I don't know who you are. I don't even claim to have the wisdom to discern necessarily all the time the difference between a Christian backsliding and an, an unbelieving hypocrite. But I'm speaking to both of you. You are playing with fire. Do you really want to go into eternity asking that question? I'm just going to hope for the best as I close my eyes in the sleep of death and hopefully when I get on the other side, it turns out I was genuine. It's better to be a Christian who questions whether you might be an unbeliever than to be an unbeliever who never questions whether or not you're a Christian. Listen to me. I'm stealing this analogy from something else, from someone else, used in a different way. When is the best time to plant an apple tree? The answer is 30 years ago is the best time to plant an apple tree. When is the second best time to plant an apple tree? Right now. Today. And so it is with repentance. When is the best time to repent? It was when you first sinned. But when is the second best time to repent? Right now. And return to God. Stop playing fast and loose with God and playing this game of eternal Russian roulette with your soul and close with Christ. Christ receives hypocrites. Come to Him. Confess your sins, heinous as they are. Mourn them. Loathe them. Pray that God would cause you to mourn them more. And resolve by the help of His Spirit Turn to come back into the way of righteousness. And if that's you, you may wonder and ask the question, I don't know if this is me coming to Christ for the first time sincerely, or if this is me like Peter, already a believer, backslidden, now returning to the Lord. Let me tell you this, right now that's not what's most important. What is most important is not that you know the moment you first genuinely and sincerely came to Christ. What is most important is that you do know Him now so that you will know Him in eternity. That brings us to our fourth thing. He attacks the conscience and assurance of believers with false reasoning. He attacks the conscience and assurance of believers with false reasoning. Our, our first three points focus on the devil as deceiver, but he is also the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12, verse 10. And he often blends these things in the Christian's con- conscience. He first deceives the Christian to reason falsely and in an unbiblical way, and he then accuses them. So, for instance, it often comes to us in the form of an unbiblical syllogism, though we don't realize it's unbiblical. And Satan will tell you 
this syllogism, this sin person that you just committed cannot remain in a true child of God. This sin does remain in you. And therefore, you must not be a child of God. And then he then jumps on the believer and accuses them to the despairing of their soul to where they are made utterly unuseful and filled with doubts and trepidation and fears. Or a second syllogism that the devil often brings to Christians, especially those with sensitive consciences. He comes to us and he says this, Christians, real Christians, will not sin again and again in the same way. But you do sin again and again in the same way. Therefore, you must not be a child of God. See, this is the devil in our, in our thinking and in our conscience. Here's the remedy. We must judge our case by the truth of Scripture. I know that, that sounds basic. We do not believe the lies of the serpent. We believe the Gospel. Does the Gospel say that certain sins disqualify a person from coming to Christ and being saved by God? No. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. 1 Timothy 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christian, you need to remember that when the devil throws your sins in your face, that the only sin that makes you a hypocrite is reigning sin. Sin that is performed with impunity and with no remorse or repentance. That does make you a hypocrite. But the Christian stumbling again and again who's getting up again and again and fighting for grace, it's not hypocrisy. That's sincerely depending on Christ to grow in Christ. Or how about the second syllogism I mentioned? Does the Gospel promise that saints will not commit the same sin more than once? Does it promise that you, if you're genuine, will never be found confessing the same sin that you confessed yesterday? Thomas Brooks said this. He said, show me one promise in the Bible where the saints are guaranteed not to fall into the same sin more than once. And he said, it's not there. God has not said to us that now that you're a Christian, you will only struggle with each sin one time, and after that, if you fail again, it proves that you're not genuinely one of my people. And so, Christian, we need to fight the temptations, the accusations of the devil, even in our own thinking. Right? Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to do that every day. Again, this is why we need other Christians, because sometimes we don't realize our thinking is broken. And so, moms, for instance, who often find your patience exhausted day after day, and you find, yet again, my love is running out for my kids. And you beat yourself up. That this must mean I'm not really walking with Christ. I don't really know Christ. Or a single person who's confessing again today the same sin that you confessed to God and pled with Him to take away last week. Don't despair. And don't be unbelieving, but believe the Gospel. Of course the devil throws our sins in our face. Of 
Of course He wants to convince us that I'm disqualified from coming to Christ. But we fight the devil with biblical truth and the truth of the Gospel. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, guilt that is really there, upward I look and I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Lastly, number five. The devil tempts us to apostasy by presenting to us the outward mercies enjoyed by the unrighteous. The devil tempts us to apostasy by presenting to our view the outward mercies and blessings enjoyed by the ungodly. So the devil comes with this approach usually to the Christian who is bearing up under a hard and heavy cross, who has lost much because of becoming a Christian. He comes to the one who has, because of their turning to Christ, they have invited all sorts of problems that they never even had before they came to Christ for the sole reason that now I'm a Christian. And the devil comes to them and he whispers, look at all the peace and joy you could have if you just left off of Christ. If you just turn back, throw in the towel, and walk again in the ways that you once walked, everything you've lost will be restored to you. You can have what they have. Christian, how the devil uses this to tempt especially the weary Christian. You've seen people close to you, even professing Christians who are not obeying the Lord who are not taking seriously His Word and the Christian life, and they are enjoying the very things you had to cut off and throw away for the sake of following Christ. And you wonder, why can't I have that? It's even worse when it's a professing Christian because it makes you wonder, are they getting the best of both worlds? They're they're still going to make it into heaven and get all that glory and blessing. But right now, they're not even having to go through the hardships that I've chosen to go through because I want to be faithful to Christ. That's the question, isn't it? Will they make it to heaven? Here's the remedy. Do not be deceived. And I mean that if you're the Christian who struggles with that, you're being faithful and you're watching others who aren't, and they seem to be well off in the world, And I mean it to that person. Do not be deceived. Christian, who are giving yourself to the Lord and His Word and sincerity and love and pressing after the celestial city, do not be envious of the wicked in this world, even if they profess to be the righteous. Because God keeps record of all things. And He will not forget your perseverance and faithfulness And He will not forget their unfaithfulness. We need, in those times, we need to bring to our mind that this life is not all that there is. And that a man's outward blessing is no indication that he is in God's favor any more than the fact that I have a cross to carry means I'm out of God's favor. Psalm 73, verses 3-5 through 
The psalmist says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. And then he changes his perspective in verse 17. And he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Christian, there is no greater misery in this life than to not be in some sort of misery because you're a Christian. There's no greater affliction God can give to a sinner than to choose not to afflict him. Thomas Brooks said, Woe! Woe to that soul that God will not even spend a rod upon. This is the saddest stroke of all when God refuses to strike at all. Christian, God disciplines those He loves as sons. Our crosses are not signs of His displeasure. They are not God our Father shortchanging us in terms of blessing. They, our crosses are designed to train us in righteousness, to prepare us for the glories of heaven, to prepare us for the enjoyments of heaven, and to conform us into the image of Christ who was patient and enduring in His suffering. As we are taught to set our hope fully on the glory that is to be revealed. Truly the wicked who have everything in this world lack more than they possess. Let me close with a quote from Brooks. He said, quote, speaking of those who prosper in this life but who will go into eternal destruction, he said, they lack a saving interest in God in Christ, the Spirit, the promises, the covenant of grace, and everlasting glory. They lack acceptance and reconciliation with God. They lack righteousness, justification, sanctification, adoption, and redemption. They lack the pardon of sin and power against sin and freedom from sin, the dominion of sin. They lack that favor from God which is better than life and that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory and that peace which passes understanding and that grace, the least spark of which is worth more than heaven and earth. They lack a house that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. They lack those riches that perish not, the glory that fades not, and the kingdom that shakes not. Christian, let us lean into our glorious and gracious God as we walk and strive to arrive safely at the celestial city. He has told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and therefore, what can man do to me? 
And we can say the same thing about the devil and his schemes and his devices. He will not get one of Christ's sheep and keep him outside the celestial city. Though he is our ancient foe, yet we can say with Paul in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so let us take fresh courage. Let us lean into Christ, the fullness of the fountain of blessings and love that He promises to give to His people, and let us walk running the race set before us as we keep our eyes on Him who is the founder of our faith and the finisher of it. Let's pray together that the Lord would give us grace and help us. Father, we thank thank You that though though our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, that we have the right man on our side. Lord Sabaoth is named from age to age the same, and he must win the battle because he has won the battle. He has emerged victorious from the tomb And it is empty and He sits in glory, finished from His work as He reigns and rules and He imparts to His people the very blessing of His benefits that He has won for us. Father, we thank You for the comfort that we cannot fail and cannot fall away because Christ did not fail and will never fall away. All of us know the agonies of being assailed by the enemy of our souls. Lord, to the point of tears at times. Tears of frustration at our own failure. And yet, Lord, what a comfort it is to remember that Christ's grace is infinite and never-ending. And that though I failed yesterday, today is a new day with new mercies. That He sits ready to give to me so Father, we, we pray that You would teach us. We pray that You would cause us, Lord, to remember more often, to live with more of an awareness that we live in the midst of a spiritual battle, that this life is a race, that this life is a, a battle and a war. We pray that we would not just tarry through it, but that we would gird up for battle. Father, we pray as our Lord taught us to pray that You would deliver us from the evil one. We pray that You would deliver us from His devices. And yet, Father, when in Your wisdom it pleases You to use these, we pray that You would also work within us the knowledge and wisdom and grace and strength to be able to resist the enemy. Father, all of these things are for Your glory. The glory of Your Son. The glory of Your Spirit. We look to You, our help. Help us, we pray. We pray that You would bless our communion together and our fellowship together as we share a meal together, as we prepare our hearts and minds for our afternoon worship. Father, help us to massage these things into one another's hearts. Pray that You would lead us into spiritual and edifying discussion and conversation.
Help us, Lord, to carry one another. Help the strong to carry the weak. Help those who are in seasons of prosperity. Help those who feel like they've been assailed with a barrage of Satan's attacks. May we encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.